So in 1996, uh, I was traveling. I was speaking to students uh, all over the place, uh, middle school, high school, and college students. And someone made arrangements for me to go to Cuba and to speak to students in Cuba. And it was against the law for us to go there, but we kind of feel like, hey, there's opportunity to take the gospel there. So we snuck in through another country and got inside Cuba. And uh, so, but the, here's the thing I want to tell you about. That was the first time in my life I saw poverty. Now, I, I didn't grow up with a lot. We didn't have, uh, you know, if we're going to have a comparison and we're going to have a contest, uh, we, we did okay. We always had food to eat, had clothes to wear, and had a house to live in. Uh, but we didn't have a plentiful amount. Um, but I, the first time I ever really saw poverty was when I was in Cuba. Uh, and uh, so I've been to a lot of other countries. I've seen a lot of poverty since then, but that was the first time I, I saw it. And, you know, we, we, would, we, we went somewhere, we're, we're driving around in this little Russian-made car and we don't have enough. Uh, and I was gonna pay for gas. They said, no, don't pull money out. You can't do that here. And I thought, okay, so the guy pulled up and, and got some gas. He had 32 cents because they used American currency there. He had 32 cents. He, took, he bought 27 cents worth of gas. I'm like, what are we gonna do, drive to the corner? Um, but that was all he had. And, and I, saw, I saw children in the streets and I'm not talking like little babies. I'm talking about five, six, seven years old and all they had on was a pair of underwear. And it, like, it was the only pair of underwear they'd ever had in their life. Uh, because they didn't have any clothes. And I was like, I had never seen that before. I went to a butcher shop and the, the butcher is reading the newspaper. And I said, hey, what are you doing? He said, I'm working. I said, but the, the meat case right there had no meat in it whatsoever. I said, I thought it was the butcher shop. Why are you working? Said, well, we haven't had any meat in six months. And so what, what do people do for protein? He said, we just eat eggs. And that's why we never kill chickens. That's our only protein source here. But for the most part is eating eggs. And uh, so that turned out to be very true. But that was the first time that I ever saw poverty and it really opened my eyes to what was going on in different places around the world. And that there were people different than me because I had, by that point, I'd been married for five or six years. I had two little boys, didn't have a daughter yet. And so what I was looking at was like, this is remarkable. I'd never seen anything like this. And, and it kind of rocked me uh, in trying to figure out what was going on because uh, I had always you know, thought, hey, just do the things I'm supposed to do and that's all that there is. And uh, that's when God began to open my eyes about generosity. And basically there's, there's two extremes that people think about when it comes to generosity. The first one is, hey, give God 10% and do whatever you want with the rest. Uh, and that, that whole idea there, and that's what we call that tithing. And we say, hey, God says, hey, here's the deal. Give me 10%. And I mean, whatever you want to do with the rest of it, do whatever. And some people look at it as, a, as an investment. Hey, if I give 10%, God's going to multiply the rest. He'll do more of 90% than I can do with 10. And so he's going to do a whole lot and he's going to pour stuff into me. And he owes it to me because I've done something for him. There's a contract that exists between me and God. And so I'm going to do all these things. And some people call it almost look like it's the God tax. You know, there's some you know, universal IRS. And so you, you, know, you pay your 10% and that's all you do. It doesn't matter what you do with the rest. And that's a really bad mindset. That's a really bad philosophy and understanding of what that is, but it's legalism. And it's like, hey, give 10% and whatever I wanna do with the rest is fine. So that's one extreme, right? And so then the other extreme is you can never give enough. And, and, and I mean, and that's what I wrestled with. I mean, and, and, and honestly, sometimes I still do. Because I sit there and go, hey, you know what? I live in a house. 
uh, what I should do is if I really love Jesus, what I would do is I'd sell my house. I'd live in a 1976 station wagon. And then like, well, no, that would be too exorbitant. I shouldn't do that. And what I need to do is I need to get rid of everything and I need to sell everything and just because, because there is, there's this relationship between uh, resources and the gospel because resources make it possible for the gospel to get places. It, it costs uh, to buy Bibles and to print Bibles and to uh, disciple people and to build buildings and to construct churches and to build up ministries and to print things. I mean, it, it, it costs, it doesn't just, you know, just pop out there, right? And so, the, so look, if I really cared about people, th- these, these kids that don't have anything, I, I should just, I mean, I should get rid of what I got. I mean, I, I, should, get, I should just walk around in burlap all the time. That would be kind of gross. Uh, but I, I mean, I, I should do that. I, I should, you know, I mean, most of us this morning uh, took a, a hot shower. Uh, three or four of you didn't, and we'll talk to you about that later. Um, but, but no, you you know, you could have turned the hot water off and taken a cold shower and the money you save, you could send to missionaries. Or, you know, or I, I live at the edge of a lake. I could just go bathe in the lake. It'd kind of make the neighbors uncomfortable, but they'd get used to it. Um, you know, there's, there's all kinds of uh, things. You know, and so how far is too far? You know, at what point do I need to just abandon everything, give up everything that I've got? If I really cared about people, if I was really being obedient to Christ, I would just get rid of every single thing I've got. Um, you know, and John Calvin writes about this about 500 years ago. This is not a new thought. He says, if a man begins to doubt whether he may use linen for his sheets, shirts, handkerchiefs, and napkins, he will afterward be uncertain also about cotton. So it goes from linen to a downgrade of cotton, right? And says, soon he must question whether he should give up napkins altogether, which I think this is kind of funny because most men I know have already given up napkins altogether. Uh, you know, if you don't, even if we don't have a sleeve, it's a little, a little bit of that. Uh, he says, if a man begins, uh, so he says, if he decides that eating gourmet food is sinful, opting instead for only plain food, soon he must conclude that he could survive on beans and rice alone. He says, if he demurs at expensive wine, how can he settle for three buck chuck? And I made that up because you wouldn't know the name of the wine that he had from 500 years ago. Uh, it says, after all, water is always cheaper and he must concede that filtered water is wrong if tap water is available. And so there's sort of this wartime mentality sometimes that we have. There's the peacetime mentality where we don't have to make great sacrifices. There's a wartime mentality. Like, you know, the, in San Diego, the Queen Elizabeth, which was one of the great luxury liners of all time, is parked. And so it was a transatlantic luxury voyage back and forth uh, prior to World War II. World War II comes along, the British convert it to a troop ship. So you could spend a lot of money and go to San Diego and you can go walk on the ship that was once one of the great luxury liners of the world and see it's converted to a, a troop ship because they needed to do something extreme. Uh, a room that would, would have two people in it at the most as a luxury liner, put, they put eight to 10 soldiers in that room uh, to transport them across the sea. Now, here's the thing. I mean, when things are desperate, we'll do, we'll, we'll give, right? Listen, if somebody was attacking my family and I was out of bullets and I need to melt spoons down to make bullets, things are pretty bad if I'm melting spoons to make bullets, by the way. But if it gets to that point, would I do that? Absolutely. If I was on the verge of starvation and there was just, and I, if I didn't eat, I was going to die, but I could give my food to my children, would I do that? Absolutely. So, so where does this stop? This, this, on the one hand, give everything until the point of death or say, look, I'm just given the bare minimum. Where, where is it? So, so here's the thing. I, I struggled with this for, for a while. And so this is something that, that I have worked on over the years. And this is, like, this is like a generosity framework. 
And so what I want to do is walk you through this framework. And there's seven of these. And if you take one of these, you're going to end up in a, in a place that your, your generosity is going to get out of skew. But if you'll take all seven of these, build them together, look at it almost like a matrix. If you'll do that, it will lead you to a place of balanced generosity where you can say, I'm doing what God wants me to do. And you don't feel guilt. You don't feel shame, but you feel enthusiasm and excitement about where you are if you take a look at it. Because almost every Christ follower I know struggles with that tension of Here's, a look, here's, here's what I, get, I need to do, and here's what I could do, and so where do I find the landing spot for me and my family? So seven of these. Number one, the life and generosity of Jesus is our model. The life and generosity of Jesus is our model. So I start with this one. This is the most important, but don't just look at this one. Don't just take this one. Take all seven of these, not just this one. It says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So Jesus left everything in heaven, the richness, the majesty, the expansiveness, all those things he left for us. And he says, I'll come to earth for you. He goes from being the king of the universe to being a baby born in a manger. He lives a sinless life. He's crucified for you, for me. He rises again so that we can have a relationship with God through Jesus. He gave everything that he had. He didn't give just 10% of it. He said, listen, I'm dying for everybody except the people with blonde hair because they get on my nerves. He didn't say that. He said, no, I'm giving everything that I have, not just part of who I am, but all that I am, giving up everything that I am. And so he's our model. And if we say that Jesus is my savior, you also need to be able to say, Jesus is my Lord. And you say, look, I, I trust him with everything. And so He's the model for us of generosity. So I'm giving all that I have. He says, uh, Colossians 1.24, Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. And you say, but whoa, 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 whoa. He says, there is something lacking in Christ's afflictions. Didn't Jesus say on the cross, it is finished? Yes, he did. So how do you reconcile these things? Well, what he says is that it is finished. All the work has been done for you to have a relationship with God. It's done. It's finished. There's no other sacrifice that needs to be made. But what is lacking is that people don't know. That's what's lacking. Martin Luther said that Jesus could have been crucified a thousand times, but if nobody knows it, if we don't tell people what he did, then it, 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 it doesn't have effectual means. In other words, the salvation process is not complete until everyone hears the gospel. That means that there's a part of what we do. So, so when we give, when we are generous, what happens is it, it is a direct relationship between that and people coming to know Christ because the gospel requires resources. It requires time. It requires prayer. It requires relationships. It requires serving. It requires giving. And God prospers us to increase our standard of giving more than our standard of living. It's not just about, hey, this, you had this house and now you got this house. Uh, but actually, he prospers us so that we can raise our standard of giving. In 2 Corinthians 9, he says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So when you give what happens, there's a direct correlation there and people come to know Christ. 
So that's the first one. But don't just look at this one and ignore the other six. Number two, enjoy what God gives you. Okay? So when God has given you something, don't feel guilty about it. Now, this is the part that somebody's going to clip out of the sermon and put on YouTube and say, whoo, go hear the prosperity guy down there in Noonan. All seven of these, not just one, okay? Don't apologize for the fact that God gave you the house that you live in, the car that you drive, the clothes that you wear. Don't curse God for that steak you had on Friday night. God, why'd you give me steak to eat? I don't want this. I should be eating tuna. No, don't do that. And don't eat tuna, it's gross. But, but, but no, don't, listen, don't feel guilty or ashamed when God blesses you. It says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Don't be full of yourself. Don't think that you did this yourself. You're rich. You say, Arthur, I'm not rich. No, you're rich. If your household income is more than $24,000 a year, you're in the top 87% of people in the world financially. If you have two cars, you ought to start calling yourself king and queen because very few people in the world have two cars at their house. He says, don't be stuck on yourself. Don't be all haughty, but instead set their hopes on the, or set their hopes on uncertain riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to, what's that say? Joy, don't be embarrassed about it. God blessed you with that. But don't make that what it's all about. Listen, God wants to give you good things. Do you know that when God created the Garden of Eden, I think sometimes we think it's about the size of our backyard. We can measure approximately the size of the Garden of Eden. It was bigger than Yellowstone National Park for two little naked people to run around in. That's a lot of space. He's a God of abundance. That's who he is. He blesses us. He's not a God of scarcity. He's not like, give me this, give me this, give me this, give me this. And I tell you what, when you get to heaven, yeah, you can come to heaven, but you get a space about the size of a shoebox to live in. No, he's a God of abundance. That's who he is. He blesses his children. David writes this in Psalm 104. He says, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. Now, if you're a really hardcore Baptist, just think sweet tea right there. Oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. He says, look, I'm going to give you things. Listen, there are times when you take a bite of food and you put it in your mouth and you all go, whoo, Jesus is Lord. Did you taste that? Right? True. Kathy said this. He said, food is essential. So what? Make it good. No, no, you can celebrate the goodness of God, when you even set, taste something, he gave you taste buds to enjoy. Everything doesn't have to taste like uh, boiled rice all the time. But you can have flavors and things explode in your mouth and think, oh, golly, this is incredible. There are people in the Bible who had incredible wealth. Abraham, the father of our faith, one of the, one of the wealthiest men who ever lived. David, King David, Solomon, probably the richest person that had ever lived on this planet. Multiple people in the book of Acts had large houses. How do we know that? Because they had churches meeting in their homes and they didn't have just three or four people there, but there were a few dozen people there. And so they had large homes. In Luke chapter eight, Luke talks about that there are three wealthy women that sustained his ministry. It's okay that God blesses you. 
In Philippians 4, Paul says this. He says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound, right? Hey, I know how to not have so much. I know how it is to have a lot. He says, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He says, how can I do all this? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do this because of what Jesus has done for me. That's how you keep it in balance. And, uh, you know, Jesus taught us to look at the world through lenses of abundance, not scarcity. And so when, when God Abrahams you, thank him and trust him. And when God Job's you, thank him and trust him. That's the way that works. Next month, my oldest son has his first wedding anniversary. That's gonna be a big party. My youngest son getting married, that's gonna be a party. My anniversary, apparently in my family, you can only get married in December. My anniversary with my short hot wife is in December, 32 years. That's gonna be fun, right? Hey babe, me and you. My birthday is in December. Go ahead and do your shopping early, avoid the rush. Christmas, right? So I don't know how this is gonna play out because our lives are gonna be a little crazy in December, but at some point, most likely, I'm gonna end up in Charlotte because one of my sons lives there. Uh, and so I'm gonna say, hey babe, let's go to Cantina 1511. And we're gonna walk in the door over there and I'm gonna go sit at this table that we like to sit in back in the back. And cause she can kind of sit close to me and I'm like, yeah, baby, she's with me. She's not with you. How about that? And we're gonna sit over there and, and somebody's gonna come out to the table and I'm gonna say, hey, I need you to make something. And they're gonna say, well, we don't have that on the menu. I said, I know you don't, but I know you'll make it if I ask you. And I want you to make me some queso fundido. It's about five different kinds of cheeses and it's a little bit of grilled pineapple. It's a special bacon and three or four kinds of peppers. And you put it in there and you take a tortilla and you dip it in there and you go, Mm, I just saw Jesus. I'm going, and I'm going to revel in that. Do you hear me? I'm going to revel in that and celebrate everything zinging in my mouth. And I'm gonna say, hey, can you send the chef out here? And, and see, the chef there is not some 17-year-old kid who couldn't get a job at Chili's, okay? And he's gonna come out and say, listen, I need some carne asada. And this is how I would like for you to fix it. And he'll say, I would love to do that. And he's gonna bring it to the table. And I am, and me and wife and Jesus are gonna eat. <laughs> and I'm just gonna look at her and go, sweetheart, God has been so good to us. And I'm gonna tell her that I love her. And we're gonna talk about our children. And we're gonna talk about our sweet church that we love so much. And we are going to love being together eating that carne asada. That's okay. The next day, we'll probably eat Waffle House. And that'll be just as good. God gives us excess so we can give generously. Number three. So don't just listen to number two because you're like, ooh, God owes me. I get a lot. No, all seven of these, right? Second Corinthians 8, he says this. He says, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. And so Paul says, listen, sometimes God drops something in your lap that you weren't expecting. You know, and there's some big blessing. You think, whoa, great, I, hit the, I just won the lottery. This is great, it's all for me. Maybe not. Maybe God dropped something in your lap because 
it's for you to use for something that's going to step into your life in a few days or a couple months. This is how he explains it. As is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. He's talking about the children of Israel when they were in the desert and God would give them manna. And he said, okay, here's some manna. And because they got, we got no food. So every morning they would go outside and he'd say, here's some manna, pick this up and eat it. It was like hot Krispy Kreme donuts laying out on the grass. And so they would pick that up and they would make stuff with it. And that's how they, they kind of got by. But here's the thing is that God said, look, just get enough for today because I'll give you more tomorrow. No, 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 I got to get a lot because you may not do it tomorrow. And God said, no, 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 don't, don't test me on this. I'm telling you, I will provide for you. And so the children of Israel would go out and get as much as they could. But if they got more than one day's supply, it would go rotten and it would smell their tent up. And so five days a week, they got enough manna for that day. On the sixth day of the week, they got enough manna. And God said, get some for today and tomorrow because tomorrow's the Sabbath. And he said, There'll be, it won't go bad during the Sabbath. And so the man instead of lasting for 24 hours will last for 48 hours. And said, because I'll give it to you tomorrow. Trust me, I will take care of you. And see, when sometimes we get something, we go, oh, I gotta get it. I gotta hold on to it while I can. And I said, no, do you trust me or not? Proverbs 28 says this, uh, those who close their eyes to the poor receive many curses, but those who give to the poor will lack nothing. And then Proverbs 3, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it's in your power to act. And Paul writes in, in Romans 1, he says, I am under obligation, meaning I'm under debt. I'm indebted both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And he says, look, I, I've got to share the gospel with everybody because what Jesus has done for me, I feel indebted to share it with other people and not just to hang on to it. And so when God gives you something, we don't hold on to it and cling to it, but we have open hands with it, Right? Think of it this way. If you've got a kid who's going to school and you make lunch for your kid every day he goes to school, you make him a sandwich. And he's been telling you about a friend that he's got at school who sometimes doesn't have lunch. And so you say, here's what I'm going to do. Tonight, I think here's what I'll do. I'm going to make two sandwiches. So before you go to bed, you put two sandwiches, you put them in his lunch bag, you put them in the refrigerator. The next morning, you get up, have breakfast, your kid leaves for school. Hey, don't forget your lunch. You hand him the lunch. And your plan is, is to tell him, take one sandwich and give it to your friend today who doesn't have lunch, and you eat the other sandwich. That's your plan. But you forget to tell him because things are in a rush that morning. He goes out the door. He gets to, he gets to school, and then you realize about 11.15, oh, I forgot to tell him. I, I forgot to tell him to give that sandwich to his friend. And so you say, I need to go to school and tell him, hey, share that other sandwich with your friend. And so you get there. It's about 1130 and you're hustling, trying to get there. And you see your kid walking across the playground with a sandwich in each hand. And you're sitting there going, oh, what is he going to do? What is he going to do? You're thinking, oh, he's going to go, he's going to take one of those sandwiches and he doesn't know what's going on. He's going to go throw it away or he's going to go bury it and save it for tomorrow. That's what my kid's going to do. But then you, you, you're trying to get there, but you can't. And you see your kid walk over and hand the extra sandwich to the friend who doesn't have lunch. And you're like, whoo. And you're loving it because you're so proud of your kid because he got it. He said, look, you had excess and you gave it to someone who had a need. Way to go. And then you go to life group three nights later and you go, I got a praise. 
I just have to say glory to the Lord for what he did in the life of my son. Because I need to tell you, I made an extra sandwich. And you know what he did? He gave it to another boy who didn't have anything. He gave it to someone who was in need. Praise the Lord. You're taking a picture of that, right? You post it on Facebook. Well, I never like to brag on my kids, but I just needed to tell you this, right? I'm not one to post these kind of things, right? And, and, and you're like, yeah, this is great. You call your mom. Mom, guess what? Look what happened. And you are just, yes, yes, yes. And so when your heavenly father sees that you have excess and you go here and you give it to some need that popped up in your life, he's like, yes, way to go. When you take that and hoard it or bury it, I don't think you get the same response. I think you need to think sometimes, why did God bring you to this church at this time? Because ultimately you're not here because of the music or the chairs or the concrete or the video or the amazing parking lot or the lovely array of trees or the old man screaming on the stage. You're here because you believe God put you here. And I think you should stay here until you move to another community. And I can make a case for that out of scripture. I don't think people should bounce around from church to church. Uh, and I, if you want me to, I can explain that to you sometime, come find me. But that means that we're all partnering together, not to build a great church, but to change a city. We're not trying to see how many people can squeeze into a room. We can hand out hundred dollar bills and fill up a room. That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to change the city. And so that means that if you're here, that you're like, yeah, I'm serving. And yes, I'm loving. And yes, I'm praying and I'm following Jesus. And yeah, I'm bringing people here and I'm living in community with people and I'm giving here because you believe in the mission that we're trying to do to connect people to Jesus and one another. It's not just a spectator sport. Number four, building wealth can be wise. Building wealth can be wise. You probably never thought you'd hear that in church, right? But it's all over the Bible. In Proverbs, it says this. It says, the crown of the wise is their wealth. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Go to the ant, O sluggard, and consider her ways. She prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. You know, um, Albert Einstein, which a lot of people think he was pretty smart. I don't know where he was or not. I never knew him. But he said the eighth wonder of the world was compound interest. You should make your money work for you. You shouldn't work for your money. Don't be a slave. There are biblical principles you can put in place to learn how to steward your money and how you can build wealth. It's not about saying how much you can get, but saving money and building wealth can increase your ability to be generous later. See, you can be generous now. And if you follow biblical principles, as you move along in your life, you can be more generous than you ever imagined. You can be. I talked to a guy a couple weeks ago and you know what he said? He said that by the time that, um, that he dies, his goal is to give away $10 million. 
awesome. Yeah, do that. He's 27. He's not some 57-year-old, almost retired kind of guy. So a couple of questions always come up when you talk about this kind of thing. Uh, what should you do about generosity if you're in debt? Uh, and should you focus on getting out of debt first and giving later? So short answer is yes and no, right? Yes, get out of debt as quickly as possible, particularly if you have unsecured debt. Unsecured debt meaning short-term loans, credit card. There's nothing securing the debt, right? It's like you, if your mortgage is secured debt. If you don't pay it, they can come take your house. So that's what you get a much lower interest rate on your house than you do on the shirt that you bought uh, online a few days ago. Uh, with a credit card. You get a much lower because that's unsecured debt. So get rid of unsecured debt, especially as quickly as you can. If you struggle with some of these financial principles, we've got people who would love to coach you and help you in a non-judgmental way to help you get to the point to put biblical principles in play so that you can uh, become uh, more generous uh, the way that you want to be. Uh, and the other thing is, no, don't stop being generous. It's, listen, if you, when your body is sick, Part of your body's resources go to work on the part of your body that is sick. You've got a, a, a pulled muscle in your arm, so you have some extra energy from your body that's going to heal that pulled muscle. But all of the energy doesn't go to heal that, that pulled muscle. Uh, it's not going to do that. The body still functions. You give extra attention there, but the body still functions. So at a minimum, I would say keep tithing because when you tithe, what you're doing is you're telling God, I'm putting you first. I'm not just saying it, I'm doing it. I'm putting my money where my mouth is, so to speak. Uh, the Bible never teaches to withhold giving until you're debt-free. doesn't say that anywhere. Number five, so we're gonna pick up the pace. Number five, treasures in heaven are always better than earthly treasure. It says in Matthew 6, it says, do not let for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But let for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Earthly treasures, they go away. You can't take them with you. Nobody goes to heaven with a moving van. You probably heard that, right? Uh, nobody has a, uh, pulls the U-Haul behind the hearse on the way to the cemetery. Uh, in the 1850s, uh, a group of people decided that they did not like the fact that their rights were being taken away. And so they decided they were going to secede from the United States. They were called the Confederate States of America. They printed currency. It looked exactly like this. This is a $1,000 Confederate bill. And there was no gold behind it. It was just, hey, we'll give you this. There was nothing to secure the, the money. They said, we'll give this to you. And uh, we'll, when we win the war, we'll, give it, we'll, we'll make it good. Well, as it turned out in the, about 1864, people started realizing that they didn't have enough resources to be able to continue to war much longer and that the South was going to have to surrender at some point. So the smart people got rid of their Confederate currency because they knew it wasn't going to work when the United States came back together again. And in the same way, if you're holding on to things here and trying to accumulate so much here and you're not building earthly, you're not building heavenly treasure, your earthly treasure is going to be worthless to you when you get to heaven. So why not build heavenly treasure? Number six, keep God as your primary source of security and significance. Uh, now, here's what happens for a lot of people when they get some money. Some people love to spend it. We call it retail therapy. 
They get some money. Oh, I'm going to spend this on this and this and this and this. And it may be stuff for them, maybe something for somebody else. They just want to spend it. It runs through their hands like water. And it makes them happy to spend it. It makes them feel better to spend it. Now, on the other one, and, and the other hand, there are people who say, look, I got some. I want to save some. I want to save as much as I can. I want to hold on to as much as I can. Because the people who are spending, they should, you should find your joy and your contentment in God, not in an emotion. On the other hand, people who are saving say, look, if I can get enough, if the economy falls apart, if uh, the world comes to an end, I got the money, I can survive because I got this nest egg over here. If Social Security falls apart, if uh, whatever might happen 15 days from now, 15 years from now, I'm good. Your trust is not in the Lord. Your trust is in your stuff. And so what happens for us, for a lot of us, is we say, well, God's doing okay, so here's a little bit. God, I like that song today, here's 10 bucks. Or there were some biscuits laying on the counter today. I grabbed a couple of them, so here's 20. <laughs> I should pay for those. And see, God doesn't want to be tipped. He wants to be worshiped. He doesn't want just, ah, oh, here's a little something. Um, I'm not sure where it says or not, so I'm going to say it. It's nothing bad. Earlier this year, I told Lori, I said, look, I think we've got a little opportunity here that we could invest some money. And she said, you sure? I said, yeah, I think so. She's always real good about it. You prayed about that? I'm like, Yes. So we talked about that a little bit and we kind of worked through this little matrix thing. We didn't go one, two, three, five, six, seven, but we sort of worked through all these things. And so what we had, I kind of went, pushed it all in. And um, I just want to tell you that sometimes I do that and it, it doesn't go well. It's part of the reason she said, are you proud about this? So anyway, it went really well. Um, and so God did something in our lives that's pretty amazing. And so just being honest and transparent with you, right? And I was telling Lori about it three or four months later. I said, this is crazy. I said, God is just doing more here than I ever imagined that he would do. And, uh, you know, he's delivered us and taken care of us and da-da-da-da and all this kind of stuff. And, I, I mean, we were standing at the island in the kitchen. I can show you exactly where she was standing and where I was standing. And I remember that conversation. And I'm telling her this. And, you know, and she just started grinning. And she said, and now we get to give it all away. If you're not married yet, that's the kind of wife you want to look for. Number seven. Listen to the Holy Spirit. This makes us nervous because we never talk about the Holy Spirit. We think he's JV God. He's not. He's not second team. He's God. When he speaks to you, tell him, you know, be obedient and fall through. Say, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm talking about. See, because you say, but Arthur, 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 can't you just tell me a rule how to do this? Nope. There's not one. If you pick one of these seven, 
it's going to fall apart. You're going to make an emotional decision. You need to be intentional. You need to plan. You need to pray. You need to be obedient to the Lord. And sometimes, you know, you say, okay, I'm going to do it. This makes sense to do this. One, two, three, four, five, six, then go seven. Holy Spirit, what do I do? Listen to him. Just a few questions to ask you real quick. Is God getting my first and best? Or are you giving him leftovers? You give him what you got when you've done everything else? Are you, what are you telling them that's really important to you? Uh, what, what does my money reveal about what I love most, trust most, and what kingdom I am living for? Just look at your debit card statement. That's all you gotta do. It's not complicated. It, it'll tell you. Uh, have I surrendered all of my resources to the Holy Spirit and listened to his voice? And then what adjustments need to be made so that you can live sufficiently and give extravagantly? So if, if you're a tither, awesome. Be obedient to the Lord. But don't be that guy who says, okay, I'm giving you my 10%, I'm done. No, God, what else have you got for me? I would encourage you, I would challenge you to say, God, what else can I give so y'all can be more like Jesus? What, what, what else can I do? I, if, if you're a, a bystander, a spectator, and you just come sit, watch, and listen, just hang out and watch the video online or whatever. Let me challenge you to start giving. Invite God into what's going on in your life. Uh, let him be a part of everything. And don't say, ah, I'll see you later. And, and maybe you're a tipper. And I'm gonna say this, and this will make some of you mad. Um, but see, and you know what I'm talking about? It's, you know, that you say, oh, well, God, here's 20. <laughs> I had a good week. Thanks for taking care of me. Some of you are big tippers. You know, every now and then you're like, bam, how about that? You impressed with that? Hey, did you see what I threw in there? How about that? Not everybody does that, do they? How about it? I think that's probably worse than doing this because you're trying to set up a contract with God. God's plan leads to blessing, meaning, and fulfillment. And so I think it starts, I think it starts with tithing and say, God, what else have you got for me? Because the Bible says we bring the tithe because it's his, right? So there, you know, at Southcrest, you know, people tithe, a bunch of people tithe. If half of us tithed, our budget would be about six times what it currently is. A lot of opportunity for us to change a city because it takes resources. Spaces and places, what am I talking about here? I'm talking about spaces and places. You can, and you can do all this on our website, but spaces and places is, is our, our buildings and grounds and properties and uh, starting new ministries and breaking out into different areas. We, our, our student ministry here, uh, this campus is exploding. Our children's ministry in LaGrange are completely out of room. They're completely out of room. That there's things that we, that we need to do uh, moving forward. Uh, we've, we've got, and, and there'll be a time for that, but there's, a, there's an opportunity for do that. If that's something that you really enjoy giving to. Uh, missions, talking about supporting our missionaries that are out of our church, but also uh, our mission partnerships. We have 13 different mission partnerships with people uh, and ministries in Coweta County. And so if you're interested in that, that's a great place to give because I think that every missionary on the planet should be driving Range Rovers and not 1978 Chevrolet Caprice station wagons. 
um, they, should have, they should have the very best because they're in difficult circumstances. Uh, another thing is, is Mosaic. Mosaic, we started that about eight weeks ago. Today's episode eight. And here's what has shocked us about Mosaic. Uh, we, we, we really thought it was a way to, to reach people who can't come into church during the pandemic. And we think that digital church is not a temporary thing, that digital church is a long-term thing. And so we said, how can we do church for people who do not want to come into a building? Because we're not trying to fill up a building, we're trying to change a city. We said, what can we do? And so the response has been off the wall. I mean, it's tremendous. Uh, you know, there's, it's not just that people are viewing it, it's that life change is happening and pe- people are, being, are engaging with it and saying, I need to change my life. And we're, every week we're helping people who are making decisions based on things they've seen on that. But here's what really shocked me because I wasn't expecting this. You know who loves Mosaic and who shares it and who watches it like crazy and shares it with people as much as anybody else? High school students. I never saw that coming. You know, I'm just an old youth pastor. That's all I am, right? But to see the reaction that students have and the way that they share it and the way that they're watching it and encouraging their friends to watch it, like, oh, didn't see that coming. There's so much opportunity for us to be able to grow our digital ministry in ways that, frankly, 10 months ago, nobody around here was thinking about. So just wrapping up today, one simple question is is this, what, what are you thankful for? I spoke to a group of men last week. And I said, hey, what are y'all thankful for? And I let five or six of them say something. And I just said, all right, because there were no women there. I said, all right. I said, I said guys, you're like a bunch of pansies. I said, quit giving these church answers. I said, no, I want you to tell me and other men who are here, what are you really thankful for? Don't say, I'm thankful for my job. I'm thankful for my wife. I'm thankful for this hamburger I had tonight. Yeah, I get all that. I said, it's kind of like a wedding thank you note. You know, you know what I'm talking about? You buy somebody a casserole dish for their, for their wedding and they say, uh, dear Arthur and Lori, thank you for the casserole dish. We can't, look, we can't wait to use it. Thanks again for the dish. Those are nice. That's a wedding thank you note because they're doing it right in 200 of them. But no, when somebody says, hey, thank you. Thank you, God, for my job because of the job that I have, I was able to meet this other man who was able to share Christ with me. And I realized that I needed Jesus. And then that impacted me and it changed my family. And so now my kids talk with me and I talk with them and we hear one another. And my wife and I have much more than we ever imagined that we would have as a couple. And I love her and she's my very best friend. And I'm so thankful for who she is and what you've done in her. That's what I'm saying when I say, what are you thankful for? Don't be in a hurry. As we sing this last song today, could you just communicate with God and tell Him, not wedding thank you note style, but from the heart right now, in this moment, what are you thankful for?